this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello, this is the New Books Network. I'm Natalia, and I'm your host today on the Literary Studies channel. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Mary Chapman, Professor of English and Acting Chair of Arts Studies in the Department of English at the University of British Columbia. And today, we'll be uh, uh, discussing um, Mary Chapman's recent publication, Becoming Suicide in Far Early Fiction, Journalism and Travel Writing by Edith Maud Eaton. Mary Chapman is also the author of Making Noise, Making Use, Suffrage Print Culture and U.S. Modernism. And she's also a co-editor of Treacherous Texts, an anthology of U.S. suffrage literature, 1846-1946. Hello, Mary. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. So before we start uh, discussing your recent publication, would you mind if you tell us a little bit about your research interests and teaching focuses? I'm an Americanist, so I've been focusing on U.S. literature from the early 19th century through the modernist period. And I've worked on a number of different projects, but mostly what has interested me overall um, are the political, the connections between the political and the literary. So when we, when we think of literature, we often tend to think of it only in terms of the aesthetics, but I'm really interested in acknowledging that many writers wrote for political purposes as well. In my teaching, I teach a range of things. I teach poetry, I teach fiction, mm-hmm. I teach uh, critical thinking, and in many of the examples I use are drawn from works that have some kind of political content, awesome. whether it's the musical Hamilton or um, a suffrage writer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your uh, current project, Becoming Suicide Far, uh, how did this project originate? I, I assume that it does have some connection to the um, research interest that uh, you just mentioned. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually a funny story. I was writing my book about suffrage literature, Making Noise, and I wanted to have a chapter that acknowledged that so much of the attention to the suffrage movement focuses on middle-class white women, and it doesn't really acknowledge how uh, women who weren't in that group would have felt about the suffrage movement. It seems obvious to us that they would they would be keen, everybody should be keen for their rights, but in fact, lots of um, women of color felt really excluded by the ways the uh, suffrage movement described the campaign. So I was researching a chapter on Suiston Farr, also known as Edith Eaton, who's an Asian-American writer. And 
I really didn't know that much about her. So one night when I was very tired, I think I was just kind of Googling the way people do late at night when they're really tired. And all of a sudden, um, a story by her came up on Google Books that I had never seen before. And it was a really weird story. It wasn't like what I thought she wrote. So it wasn't signed with her Chinese pseudonym. It wasn't about uh, North American Chinatowns. It was about the the Spanish-American War mm. and a gold digger going to Alaska, impregnating a, a Native American woman and then abandoning her and going to help fight the war in the Philippines. So it was just a crazy, crazy story. And it made me think that this was a very popular, um, a very prolific writer but we understood very little about her because all we had seen was a book of short stories that a scholar discovered in the 1980s. It was just, you know, in some old library somewhere and he found it. And we, we were basing our whole understanding of her on 37 stories, whereas what I began to discover is she wrote hundreds and hundreds of works. So uh, with your uh, recent publication, you're rediscovering uh, It Is Eaten, uh, and you're bringing to the light some new writings that uh, probably were not published or were not included in, in, included into uh, previous anthologies or collections. That's right. Most of um, what, certainly the works that I am finding had an original publication in 1900, in 1910, but they have not been seen since. So they were buried in periodicals, newspapers, things that unless, you know, unless they've been republished, we've never seen. So I had to do a lot of digging in microfilm, microfiche, some digital databases that were available in order to find these works. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that the story you read was kind of weird because it uh, didn't fit into that concept of Eden Eaten that you had before. Yeah. Uh, and um, how your vision of uh, Eden Ethan changed after you collected some new uh, essays, new writings? That's a good question. Basically, when she was discovered in the 1980s, Edith Eaton was appreciated in terms of the way she represented the early Chinese-American voice. She was a real defender of Chinese immigrants in a period in which they were treated with many racist policies, whether it was just um, general people being racist towards them, not wanting to hire them or live near them or whatever, or um, some sort of firmer policies like the Exclusion Act that really limited immigration by Chinese into the U.S. after 1882. So... So when Edith Eaton was rediscovered in the 1980s, 
She was celebrated mostly in terms of the contribution she made to Chinese American uh, culture, and she was celebrated as the mother of Asian American literature because her 1912 uh, book was one of the earliest uh, Chinese American books published. Um, but since I've been working on her, I've found uh, almost 200 unknown works by her, mm. and they really expand how we understand her. So in addition to the Chinese uh, kind of defending the Chinese stories that she wrote, the sympathetic depictions of Chinatowns that she wrote, what I've also found are um, journalistic articles written from a kind of stunt girl journalism background. Um, by that, I mean she would uh, kind of immerse herself in a story and make her embodied feelings and experience be more of the story. So sort of the opposite of what we think of as objective journalism. So for example, she would go into the cell of someone put in prison for murder and she would interview him but the story would actually be about her terror being locked in this cell mm -hmm. temporarily with this fiend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so very melodramatic um, journalism. She also traveled a lot and worked around the uh, around North America. So she lived in Montreal growing up. Mm -hmm. So she actually contributed a lot of journalism to local newspapers. Um, she wrote a woman's column that told people what kind of hats to wear and how to throw parties mm -hmm. and how to do crochet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she wrote, um, she contributed to this fiction series that was syndicated in a newspaper in, in newspapers across the US and it was just a little sort of a story of the day and she would contribute these really um, sensational passionate stories almost like a precursor to um, Harlequin romances um, you know very very romantic and sensational but at the same time, she was uh, supportive of missionary schools, and so she would write these cute um, didactic stories for children mm -hmm. about um, religion and good behavior and kindness to, to others. So she was a really diverse writer. Um, my, my favorite works by her, however, are the short stories that she wrote examining the border between Canada and the U.S. So she wrote, for example, she wrote several stories that feature people who are helping Chinese who are trying to immigrate into the U.S., helping them, smuggling them across the border during the exclusion era and helping them get into the U.S. So those stories are very exciting. And they also tell us something really interesting about 
the period because they're almost like the stories that we're more familiar with from the Underground Railroad, where um, African Americans are trying to flee slavery and people help them along the way. Maybe they take on uh, masquerades or they pretend women pretend to be men or vice versa, and they go north to freedom, whether it's to the northern U.S. or to Canada. So these stories seem to be based on those stories, but they're going in the opposite direction and they're involving a different uh, persecuted group. You mentioned that she traveled a lot and uh, it somehow impacted her traveling as well. And in the introduction <clears throat> that um, that you include into this uh, collection of um E e Eaton's uh, writing, you write the following. At her death in 1914, Eaton had lived in England, French Canada, Northern Ontario, the Caribbean, and several port cities in the U.S., and had experienced the ethnic, racial, and cultural settings of the contact zones of all these diverse locales. Oh, would you tell us a little bit about her background, maybe family background or her traveling background, just for us to better understand how this traveling impacted her diverse uh, writing and her diverse approaches to constructing her stories? Um, also, in the introduction, you mentioned that her father also traveled a lot. He traveled to China, and that's where he married uh, his future wife. Right. Yeah, they are a fascinating family. I'm, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Um, I'll start with her family history, because even though I have not intended to be writing a biography of her, I seem to have found so much out about this early North American mixed-race family, and it seems so pertinent to today. So basically... Her father was a British man from a northern English town that specialized in textiles. And he traveled to China in the 1850s and early 1860s. And um, from what I can gather, he was buying dyes and silk and maybe even silkworms and bringing them back to England to help the textile industry. Her mother has an even more fascinating story. Uh, she was Chinese, and when she was very, very young, probably um, three or four, she was purchased mm -hmm. from her family by a Chinese acrobat and his wife. They ran a troupe that toured China performing uh, gymnastics, juggling, dancing, that that sort of thing, sort of like the Chinese gym uh, acrobatic shows you might you might know about today. And so she was basically a slave, although sometimes that's not the word that's used to describe the children who were purchased at that time. Sometimes they're seen more as apprentices. They're being given an opportunity to learn a trade. Um, a, their poor family is trying to help them get some sort of training. But anyway, she toured the world from age five as a tightrope dancer. 
she performed for the emperor in China and then left China to come to San Francisco in 1851. And in the U.S., she performed across the nation, everything from San Francisco to Boston, New York, uh, D.C. And then uh, they went by ship to England and they performed throughout the British Isles. So by the time she was 10 or 11, she had lived in China, toured the U.S., and toured parts of the British Isles, France, and maybe Germany. So she's a pretty amazing woman. Um, then what happened was uh, somebody suspected her owner of mistreating her. Hmm. He had stopped using her in the tightrope tight dancing act, and he had started using her as a human target in a knife throwing stunt mm. you've probably seen oh, this yeah. crazy knife throwing stunt mm. where people will stand against a board and sort of stretch their fingers out and their limbs out and then the knife thrower will try to aim the knives to go perfectly in the spaces in between their fingers well that was her job as a kind of teenager a prepubescent uh, girl so some missionaries rescued her from a London boarding house. And from then on, she was educated in a British school and she trained to be a missionary. And she, she converted to Christianity. She trained to be a missionary. And then she moved back to China to be a missionary and to use her, her native language. And that's where she met Edith Eaton's father. So you can see, just from my description of right. the parents of Edith Eaton, you can see that they were incredibly transnational figures with an awareness of the complex political reality of mid the mid-19th century world. And I think Edith Eaton, growing up, absorbed a lot of their sophistication and their complexity and their curiosity. And then she herself, because the family moved, uh, she, the parents moved back to England. She was born in England and then they emigrated to North America. She and her family, the children were all raised in Montreal, which was a an unusual city in North America at the time because it was predominantly French speaking, but the elites who ran the very important businesses, most of the head offices of Canadian companies were in Montreal. These people were all English or Scottish. So the language of business was English. So starting out there, she already had a sense of how mixed communities could be, the English and Scottish, the French, and then Chinese immigrants coming to Montreal made it a very complicated um, international city. And then some of the other job opportunities she had working as a journalist in Jamaica for six months, working as a journalist in Thunder Bay, Northern Ontario for a year, and then working as a journalist in California and uh, Washington State, and then Boston and New York. All of these cities had 
slightly different but sort of equally diverse communities that could form the inspiration for some of her writings. So uh, transnationalism and transculturalism are one of those aspects of Eaton's writing that you define as characteristic. And with your permission, I'll, I'll quote you one more time. Rather, rather than affirming fixed nationality or citizenship through images of settlement, assimilation and permanence, Eaton finds it more productive to depict her subjects in motion. So where does this preoccupation with nationality come from for Eaton? I think the period in which she's writing is a period in which um, the, the idea of nation is getting a lot of attention. So even to take the example of the U.S. and Canada, there were conversations going on in the 1890s about how much more efficient or successful it might be for Canada to just join the U.S. Here we are, two countries with um, English as one, you know, a main language. Uh, we're in North America. Why don't we just unite and expand um, as one nation? So that was certainly a conversation going on. At the same time, there were nations, uh, there were colonies moving towards greater senses of independence. So Jamaica, for example, and there were nations within nations trying to be respected, whether it was the French within Canada or um, Native Canadians within Canada. Uh, so the question of nation is, is very important. Add to that the more um, global context of emigration, uh, trade, huge networks of connections across the globe that are enabled by huge shipping industries. And we have people like Sui Sinfar's mother who can begin her life in China uh, learn English across North America, get uh, become aware, uh, have some lived experience in Europe, and die in New York City, we have someone who's explored so many aspects of the world and perhaps begun to recognize that even as we have laws that are controlling people's movement and defining them, solely in terms of some national identity that makes the most bureaucratic sense, that, that these people can't quite be explained by that. So I think for Edith Eaton writing as Sui Sinfar, um, this idea of nationality is simply way too restrictive. It doesn't explain us. And so when she was in Canada, she felt a little bit of an outsider because she had been born in England and because one of her parents was not white. When she was in the U.S., she felt out of step because she had grown up in Canada. So she never quite 
she never quite owned these national um, mm -hmm. definitions or labels. Uh, she, they never s sat quite right with her. And so she was very interested in looking at people in her journalism, people who didn't quite fit um, in her short stories, people who were struggling with various aspects of their identity, not only nationality, but also uh, gender, um, sexuality, uh, race. She has people, uh, characters who are Chinese, but masquerade as Japanese or Native American. She has women cross-dressing as men. Um, she has a lot of people struggling with the categories that uh, limit their their self-making, I guess. Mm -hmm. So her writing demonstrates this aversion of the notion of nationality. I particular yes. I particularly like the uh, um, statement that actually opens the collection. Uh, After all, I have no nationality and am not anxious to claim any. Individuality is more than nationality. So what's Eaton's understanding of individuality? That's a great question. Yeah, I love that quotation. Right. And she quotes it, she, she uses it in some autobiographical writings that she made. She also uses it in some stories. She keeps returning to it. Clearly, it's a phrase that she came up with and she really liked. Um, I think individuality is about freedom, creativity, imagination, um, change, and nationality is, for her, is about being fixed, being closed down, being pigeonholed in a way. Um, one of my favorite finds in, in my research, one of the pieces that I've included in Becoming Sui Sinfar, is this very quirky little journalistic article about a man whose name is Yen Moy. And he's arrived in, at a port on the west coast of um, British Columbia from China. So by his name, Yen Moy, uh, you might think he's Chinese. Mm -hmm. And he is expected by the customs officials in the Canadian port he arrives at to pay uh, what's called a head tax. This was a kind of immigration rule that demanded that Chinese immigrants pay initially, I think it was $50, but by 1903, I think it was $100 or $500. It, it went up so that it was a huge tax to pay. I mean, you can think of how much an immigrant might have to pay to, to emigrate to North America. It wouldn't be a year's salary of a working class laundry worker. In any case, this fellow is taxed, but she describes him and his background makes him almost um, impossible to understand. She says he's an albino. He doesn't know any English, mm. but his parents were both 
English subjects born in Australia. So he seems to be a sort of culturally mixed person who has the name, the clothing, the language of a Chinese person, and therefore the customs officials decide he's Chinese. But he also has the genealogical makeup and the citizenship um, details of someone who's a British subject. So he's the kind of person she's interested in. She has a feeling that many people are complicated and can't be defined simply by nationality, as if that's a catch-all um, for a bunch of conforming characteristics. He, he defies definition, pretty much. So Eaton exercises the idea of freedom to its utmost extent with her writing. Uh, she experiments with all kinds of genres, and she experiments with all kinds of narrators. And before uh, before uh, talking a little bit about her narrative-specific features, would you um, just comment a little bit on her um, on her writing in general and on how you um, compiled this collection of her writing? Because uh, there are pieces which were signed by her real name. There are pieces which were signed by her uh, pen name. Uh, there were pieces which were also unsigned, but you identified that they were written by Eaton. That's right. Whenever we work on popular writers who publish in newspapers and magazines, uh, there's a lot more work involved in figuring out which works are by them, because newspapers wouldn't typically sign things. And if you were a really popular writer, you might experiment with brand and sign certain texts with one name and other texts with another. When she started out writing short stories in Montreal, she published under her biographical name, so Edith Eaton. And she published a bunch of stories that were quite derivative. Uh, they were sort of inspired by British writers like Oscar Wilde or um, Tennyson or I don't know, those kind of late 19th century uh, British writers. But then she started doing journalism, uh, contributing journalism to Montreal newspapers, and she didn't sign those. But the way we've been able to uh, um, <laughs> forget the word, <laughs> um, attribute them to her is by finding passages that she used in these journalistic pieces that later show up in some of her signed work. So partly that was the kind of work I was doing, figuring out passages that recurred in other places. She was a big recycler, so in a way that was fortunate. Um, by about 1896, she starts really focusing her writing career on Chinese-American characters. She starts writing journalism about Chinese North Americans. She starts writing fiction, and she starts signing the fiction she published with this Chinese pseudonym, Sui Sin Far, or as the Chinese might say, Shui Xin Hua. <laughs> and this name means a kind of narcissus. You know those... Uh, 
Christmas paper whites that right. kind of grow in rocks with a little bit of water. Right. I think that's the, the flower that's referred to. So she uses that pseudonym and most of the works that people are familiar with were signed with that pseudonym. But then she moved to Jamaica and was working as a journalist there. And one of her assignments was to have a kind of a, a feisty young woman, a kind of new woman column. And she signed it Firefly. Mm. And the Firefly is a kind of flitting, um, cute, light, curious kind of figure. It pops up in different places unexpectedly and it illuminates and it's it's really busy. It's got a kind of frenetic energy. So she uses that pseudonym for a while, Firefly. And then later in her life, even as she's continuing to publish some stories by Edith Eaton, like this one about the Spanish-American War, and she's continuing to publish most of her uh, stories about Chinese-Americans under the pseudonym Suisin Far, she also started writing a few things under some other pseudonyms. So, for example, she crossed North America on by train. She did this big loop starting in Los Angeles, going north to the Canadian border and Vancouver, then crossing east to Montreal, south to New York, and then across the U.S. back to the West Coast. And it was a fascinating narrative written in 1904 because she's she's stopping by all these curious sights along the way and sort of remarking, oh, what's Chicago like in 1904? And, and who are the Chinese reformers active in New York City? And what kind of skyscraper is being built in um, Detroit? You know, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, travel narrative. But in the travel narrative, instead of writing as herself, she assumes the identity of a male Chinese merchant named Wing Sing. And she just writes as him. I'm not, I'm not sure why. Like sometimes I wonder, did she actually dress up as a man, <laughs> get on that train, and, and kind of live her experience across the country as a man? Or is she just you know, sitting on the train as a mild-mannered um, half-Chinese woman and then filing her story by telegram to, to the newspaper um, using the signature Wing Sing. I have no idea, but, um, but, the, but this story, this travel narrative, which is in 13 or 14 installments, gives you an idea of her, her playfulness, how mm -hmm. she's quick to take up an identity and write from that identity and sort of empathetic, empathetically embody that identity. That's a very interesting combination of um, uh, trying um, to put on different identities while being play playful um, at the same time. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, is there some tinge of irony in her writing? Um, particularly thinking about her story, Misunderstood, the story of a young man, 
Oh, it's a bit, uh, well, if you don't mind, I can just read out loud this very short paragraph from that story. Sure. There once lived a very amiable young man. The reason why I call him an amiable young man is because he had a great desire to make every woman he knew happy. How he could accomplish this was his thought night and day. And then there is the continuation of the story. One evening, while deeply meditating about, upon the subject, an apparition appeared upon him. Apparitions from the unknown world often appear to spiritual, noble-minded young men, even at the present day. Well, this mysterious being, divining the thoughts which were puzzling the brain of my hero, addressed him in, his, in this wise. Young man, your great and laudable ambition shall be gratified. A woman's happiness is compromised in one little word, and that word is love. Do not all the great writers of the past and present endorse my opinion? Yeah, even though her love be unrequited, she is happier for having felt that noble sentiment. Tennyson says, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." So would you, um, is, is that correct that there is some, some sort of irony in her writing as well? Yes, she is a very clever writer <laughs> yeah. to quick to deflate, to point out the hypocrisies of others. So even as she, in that story, it's a very early story, and a, a story where she's experimenting with narration, um, even in that story, she's pointing out how narcissistic this young He's really full of himself. He he wants, apparently, he wants to make everyone happy, but actually what he wants is to be adored by everyone. So she writes this story that's pretty far-fetched about all the women who who adore him, and then all of a sudden they they kind of take their revenge out on him. So she's, she's often writing tongue-in-cheek. I think that's what I like about her most. She's a very feisty, um, cute, clever, plucky kind of voice. So whenever she's writing in the first person, the, the character that she's speaking from is usually someone who's not going to be fooled by people's um, seductive behaviors. So a, another piece she wrote that is similar to that story, but from a different perspective, is called The Typewriter. Mm -hmm. And it's about the figure of the typewriter girl, the, the woman who's working in an office as the typist. Uh, they used to be called typewriters. The girls, the, the workers would be called typewriters and the machines would be called typewriters. So there's a little bit of play between those. But in this little sketch, she describes being the typist for a lawyer. And basically, he dictates and she has to type what he says. And so over the course of working with him, she realizes that he is sending out the same uh, emotionally expressed love letter and marriage proposal, which she is typing. She, he's sending this out to multiple girls. <laughs> so 
So at the same time that he's pretending to have these unique, passionate feelings for an individual woman, he's actually just recycling them all. And she, by her position as his typist, is the one who has to actually kind of execute this deception. Um, so she's interested in how she can introduce uh, spelling mistakes into his uh, letters or change, kind of edit what he's dictating that she writes. And she's very uh, playful. She puns on the idea of dictators as uh, people who dictate their letters to a typist, but also authoritarian figures who boss everybody around. So I think there's there's always a sense of irony mm -hmm. and play in what she writes. Mm -hmm. So you define Eaton in terms of in-betweenness uh, when you were speaking about her national identity, so to speak. She is Asian-American and Asian-Canadian. And um, I feel like this term of in-betweenness can be applied to her writing as well, because she doesn't go too far with sentimentality, for example, because there is some tinge of sentimentality in her stories, like Misunderstood, the story of a young man, or A Fatal Tug of War. Yeah. But there is some uh, other layer to these nar uh, narratives. There is some moral layer and, of course, some uh, ethical layer. And she doesn't... She doesn't uh, go uh, to one certain direction. She tries all kinds of routes, like with her traveling uh, or across the world. She she travels across writing, so to speak, as well. Yeah, she does. I think in one way we can understand turn-of-the-century writers as uh, experimenting with a range of forms and voices because they're trying to earn a living. So mm -hmm. they may say, this magazine will publish me if I give them uh, a sweet story for children. So, for example, Good Housekeeping or Ladies Home Journal. They will love a story that can be read around the fireside to everyone in the family and be sort of family-oriented. At the same time, some of the little magazines that were coming out in the early 1900s, they were very um, uh, kind of progressive and open in terms of the the social mores of the day. So they would explore things like bohemian life, uh, divorce, uh, seduction, um, mixed race families who were not um, easily absorbed into a kind of homogeneous racist society. So she sent some of her, um, some the works that she sent to magazines like The Bohemian uh, had themes like suicide, divorce, mm -hmm. and seduction that would never have been uh, covered by a more family-centered magazine. So in one way, I think we can understand her as like every other professional writer of the turn of the century, just trying to maximize her success in a variety of um, parts of the print cultural field. But at the same time, I think she also is experimenting to explore 
parts of her personality and things that are important to her. The Chinese American community, she's getting to know them from a perspective of someone who is the daughter of a Chinese woman, but has never really lived among Chinese people. Mm -hmm. So as far as we can tell, her mother was almost like a Victorian British woman. You know, she hadn't lived with her Chinese family or in China since she was five years old. So her, her ties to China were limited. So when, when Eaton begins to write stories about Chinese America, she's a little bit like an anthropologist. She's exploring, she's asking questions, she's trying to understand the language, the rituals, the cultural differences. And, and so she, she throws herself into that. At the same time, when she's in Jamaica, she's suddenly encountering um, a community that's predominantly black and she hasn't had that experience before. Montreal didn't have a large black community before 1900. So she begins to understand British colonialism in a racialized space and she begins to write stories that feature um, versions of the tragic mulatta figure, um, mixed race, Caribbean women seduced by wealthy uh, white men, those kinds of stories. So I think she's, she's exploring a range of topics that interest her because of her own complicated background, but also because the world at that time is very complicated. And these are sort of flashpoints, places where something like transnational trade, like racial mixture, like um, transnationalism can be explored. So um, motion is one of those characteristics that um, could almost always be discerned in her writing. Uh, what are other themes and topoi, so to speak, that um, constitute her unique universe and what that universe is like? I think one of the tropes that recurs is the trope of smuggling. Mm-hmm. So it's out as a literal, um, a literal event in several of the stories she wrote because they're about people smuggling Chinese into the U.S. But smuggling becomes a trope about hiding one's identity. So, for example, when she talks about smuggling, she's uh, referencing a number of containers that goods were smuggled in. Uh, Somebody figured out how to smuggle drugs in the hollow handle of umbrellas, for example, and someone figured out how to smuggle Chinese into the U.S. in coffins. Um, so, so there's a container, something visible that people decide they understand the meaning of, and then there's something inside that is different from that exterior appearance. So smuggling becomes the trope through which she um, explores the disconnect between 
one's identity, one's interior sense of self, and the identity that people impose upon one because of one's appearance. So that's uh, one of the tropes. Um, I'm trying to think. One of the other tropes that is really interesting me right now, mm -hmm. um, because now I'm writing a book about Suisse and Far that is building on all the literary works that I found by her. Mm -hmm. One of the tropes that I'm really interested in is African Americanness. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't think that. A, a half Chinese woman raised in Montreal would necessarily have any connection to um, tropes like the tragic mulatto, the um, the fu fugitive slave journeys, um, uh, slave girls, and yet a number of the stories that she tells about slave girls like her mother, um, fugitive smugglers, um, tragic um, mixed-race, half-Chinese uh, women, many of these stories that are set in a kind of Chinese-American context actually draw on and, and have similarities with uh, stories that we know were in the popular media of the time about African Americans. I'm thinking that in the 1890s, we're 25 years post-slavery, um, post-emancipation, uh, you know, the end of the Civil War. Those popular stories where enslaved people find freedom in the North, those popular stories about um, half African American women um, being badly treated but enacting their revenge, those kinds of stories almost uh, provide her with a template for telling stories about this new, newly oppressed community um, of, of uh, diasporic Chinese. So that's what I'm that's what I'm interested in now. And I found stories where she quotes minstrel songs, stories that feature characters, minor characters, but significant characters who are African American. And that's what I'm gravitating to. Um, the other thing I should say that I didn't mention when we were talking about family, but I, but I think this relates to my new project. One thing I discovered as I researched the family is that her father was involved in helping Chinese who were trying to get into the U.S. In, during the exclusion era. He was helping them get in. So he was actually arrested twice for smuggling Chinese across mm -hmm. the uh, Quebec-New York state border. And in some of the stories, the fiction she writes about smuggling, she features, some of these stories feature women who cross-dress and help with the smuggling. So 
there's reason to believe, based on the stories that she writes and also some newspaper articles people published about Montreal smuggling rings involving women, young women, there's reason to believe that either she or one of her sisters was actually involved in assisting her father in smuggling. So, so I think the family depicted their involvement in this activity, an activity we would regard now as, oh, illegal smuggling, you know, mm-hmm. that's bad, that's criminal. Um, I think they viewed it as similar to the kind of assistance that people provided when the Underground Railroad was in place. Certainly, these people were breaking the law because the law didn't want them to aid and abet fugitive slaves. However, they had an ethical commitment to anti-racism. They regarded the fugitive slave laws as illegal or unethical, and they refused to um, be bound by them. So I think some of her father's activities around smuggling come from the same um, impulse. And that's, um, that makes me curious to explore how underground railroad tropes figure in the works she writes about smuggling. Uh, how, does, uh, how do her works redefine the our vision of Canadian literature, for example, and American literature of the um, of the beginning of the twentieth century. That's a good question. Um, I think for for Canadian literature, she serves a very interesting purpose because she's a very early writer um, who acknowledges the racial and ethnic diversity of Canada and and speaks about it often. She doesn't um, sweep the racial tensions under the rug. She, she wants to pay attention to them. So she's a great archival resource for anyone working on Canadian literature or Canadian history to to hear a different perspective. In terms of the U.S., it's a much bigger pool of writers, but even so, I think we can learn a lot about the print culture of the period by seeing how strategically she uh, optimizes her publications and her success by tailoring the kinds of works she writes to the particular um, editorial principles of the of the newspapers and magazines she submitted to, we can also see how um, how regional the publishing industry is at the time. So what I noticed was that um, many of the magazines that she contributed to were kind of like the in-flight magazines that we have today. You know, you get on an airplane and there's a magazine in the in the pocket and you read read about different exotic places that the airline serves. Well, a hundred years ago, railway companies had similar magazines. 
and they had fiction and ethnography and travel literature and advertisements all uh, kind of cultivating your desire to travel further on the routes that were served by that uh, railroad. So she writes in at a moment at which a certain kind of ethnographic fiction is being encouraged by these print cultural opportunities. So people are writing about uh, Native Americans of New Mexico and Spanish missions in California. And um, so she contributes stories about diasporic Chinese in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Um, these are all part of the local color literature or regional literature trends of the turn of the 19th to 20th century. Um, so, so that's one way I can see her contributing mm -hmm. to the U.S. literary field. So Eaton's uh, work uh, somehow demonstrates that uh, uh, writing resists any kind of limitation and literary canons can be revised, revisited and reconsidered and due to um, diverse writing like Eaton's, for example. Thank you so much, Mary, for this fascinating conversation. Thank you, Natalia. And uh, good luck on your current project. It sounds fascinating and very intriguing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mary.